We are starting a new series, not today, but next Sunday. Um, it's called The Gospel of the Kingdom, and it's going to be brilliant because it's the very first recorded sermon of Jesus Christ. We often call it the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus refers to it as literally the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of this kingdom that he is king of. So we'll jump into that next week. Uh, this week, I want to take just a moment and look at something that I think is important because more and more I'm noticing that people have an identity crisis. Like if you go and look at the best nonfiction sellers on Amazon, almost all of them are unscrew yourself, uh, be the better you, figure yourself out, know yourself. They're all this kind of like, hey, you don't know yourself, let me help you to know yourself, right? Because we're in an identity crisis. Last week I mentioned that there's a church uh, in Chicago that has drag queens come in and preach sermons to the kids. And I got some, some pushback on that. You're singling out this group of people and this and that. And um, I said, what's wrong about it in conversations with some people is it's confusing to children. That right now children are being very confused on something that I don't think is all that confusing right? So perhaps you've seen this. This is what now young children are being taught as young as five years old. Uh, the gingerbread person, right? Gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, sexual orientation. And it's not even now the gingerbread person anymore. It's the, it's the unicorn. Perhaps you've seen that. It looks like a cross between a unicorn and Barney. So you're like, what is that thing? Well, here's just one part of this. This is, this is uh, one part of what is being told to little kids. And I'll read it for you. Next slide, right there. Gender identity is how you, five-year-old kid, is how you, in your head, think about yourself. It is the chemistry that composes you, hormone levels. And it's how you interpret what that means. Ugh. Something that was so simple for so long in human civilization, you are a boy and you are a girl. Is now just like, what? What is this? It's how you do this and you do, like, I, I don't think kids need to try to figure this stuff out for themselves. I think it is the job of parents and society to teach them these things. So the Bible says, Proverbs, that you train up a child in the way that they're supposed to go. That's our job now. But here's what's amazing to me. You've seen them. Videos of professors with PhDs that have spent 10 years being educated or in some instances indoctrinated, but they have a lot of information being yelled at by children. And instead of being like, time out, I've studied this for 10 years. Instead of doing that, they're like, well, I just need to listen to you and your shared experience right now. No, no. You know about physics, teach it, teach it. But, but it's like, we're afraid of teaching anymore. Like Myron, he's my nine-year-old. Am I gonna say that to Myron? Myron, how do you feel about yourself today? How do you interpret your feelings? Well, dad, I feel like I should jump off the top of the house. Well, Myron, if you feel that way, 
You do you, buddy. <laughs> no, right? I want to take the shotgun and shoot something. Well, Myron, you do you. You go for it. No, we teach age-appropriate stuff. But I think we've lost something, and part of it's identity. And it's a new phenomenon for us. Like, if we just could reverse the clock 200 years and go back to 1823, there's none of this happening. Part of it was you got your identity from your family. So like the last names of people would often be their identity. So the Smiths were a, were a family that did what? Made stuff out of metal, blacksmiths, right? Tanners were a family of people that took animal hides and, and tanned them and then made leather products out of the animal hides. A baker was a baker. <laughs> Heverly is literally German for talker. That's what our family does. We talk a lot. I can go on and on and on. So it used to be like you, you had this identity from your family or from this tribe that you belong to or even from your religion. You'd get like an identity from your religion. But we've lost that, right? I know people that will tell me, Matt, I'm a Presbyterian and my Grandfather was a Presbyterian, and my great-grandfather was a Presbyterian, right? It's been this passing down of this, hey, this is the group that we belong to, but we've lost it. But you go some places, and there's still like this identity that's, there's something really cool and attractive to it. So about three years ago, a group of us went over to Africa. We have a, a church that we've supported over there called New Song. Uh, our missions pastor, Jason Folkstadt, went over there and kind of linked in with a church in a community and built a fish farm and the fish farm feeds the church and, and pays for kids to go to school there. Just a really cool thing. So we went over to visit those things. And when we were in town one day, we're just sitting there and these guys come down and they're from the Maasai. I don't know if you've heard of the Maasai tribe, but jump high like the Maasai. There's these guys that just jump. They're, they're unbelievable. And even though like most of Africa, like dress like I would dress or like you, like they look like you and me. Like that's the way culture is now. The Maasai have kept like this very distinctness in the way that they look. They just kept this culture. And part of the Maasai culture is they, they're, they're cow herdsmen. And in order for a Maasai boy to become a man, guess what he has to do? Single-handedly go out on the savannah and kill a lion with his bare hands. Yeah, you're just like, dude, are you kidding me? And they look very distinct to this day, right? They, they carry around this bottle and it's, it's half cow's milk and it's half cow's blood. And they will live off that for like weeks as they travel across the desert. They're just as tough as they come. And you can tell them very quickly because they still wear these blankets. They hand weave these blankets and they carry these sticks. So right here is a picture. Can you pick out the Maasai there? Right? So we end up having a meal at this Maasai family's house. And because I'm a pastor, they gave me a stick and then they gave me a blanket. So guess what I did from that point on? Look, look at the next picture. Can you pick out the Maasai there? Right? All right, next picture. Can you pick out the Maasai? Okay, next picture. Can you pick out the Maasai? Okay, next picture. Can you pick out the Maasai? This is literally... All these men here are Maasai pastors. And I'm the only one dressed like a Maasai. <laughs> All right, so we come back to America. I'm in the Seattle airport. Can you pick out the Maasai? 
<laughs> I did not drink blood and milk and I did not kill a lion. So I'm just a full on poser. But I love the, like just the solidity that these men have that are Maasai. They know they have an identity that's just been passed down to them and it's brilliant and it's beautiful. But what's happened is we don't have tribes anymore. We don't belong anymore. Careers used to identify us, but really we go from job to job to job, like a better opportunity. We change them all the time. So you can just Google, it's called deaths of despair. It's people because they used to have an identity in a career. It kind of meant something to them, but now they've lost that. And, and so part of the article I read was about West Virginia coal miners. Like it used to be this thing, we're West Virginia coal miners. We get together as a band of brothers. We go deep down into the earth. We work our tails off. It's nasty, it's dirty, it's hard, it's dangerous, but we're coal miners. And it gave them this kind of, mm. well, those same men are now Amazon warehouse workers where there's no camaraderie, where there's no like we did something hard and dangerous today. It's we're a robot, we're a cog in a machine, and it's causing what they call the deaths of despair because they've lost it, right? It, it doesn't really matter. Churches, right? We used to kind of belong to a church, a Presbyterian, whatever it is. Well, now it's just skip around. Which one is the best for me? You know, which one's helping me? And, and it's a lot of kind of me in there. It's not, I, I am giving to this body and being a part of it, and I belong to them for better or for worse. Family used to be our identity. But how many times do you, do you have family just moves away for an opportunity or moves away because they don't really like their family? Like, I'm getting out of here. So family doesn't define us. So all these ancient kind of identifying, giving you who you are, they've really been broken. And a lot of Americans, we're just kind of orphans trying to figure out who are we. And when you're an orphan, when you don't know who you are, guess what happens? Culture gives you an identity. And if you don't know who you are, you often don't know what to do. That's how important identity is. And, and here's what I've seen with culture. Culture, I think, gives these identifiers. They're kind of fake, but they give them to us. Identifier number one is this. You are what you possess. And whether we like it or not, we judge people on their possessions, don't we? Like you look at somebody just how they're dressed, and don't you immediately just make a determination about what kind of person they are? Just simply on how they're dressed. So my son works retail right now at a local uh, hardware store. And we were talking a couple weeks ago when I picked him up. He's like, dad, I know almost immediately what kind of a person I'm dealing with. And he's been there since October by simply looking at the shoes that they wear. All right, they come in with beat up Romeos, construction duties, you know what he needs. They come in with Air Jordans on, they're gonna be like, okay, this guy's gonna need a lot of help. He's clueless. Just simply based on the shoe. That's, and that's what we do. We, it's a marker. But when my identity is what I possess, then what happens in my soul is this. I'll sell myself for possessions. Like I'll do whatever. I'll be a chameleon. I'll do whatever. I don't really have a real identity because my identity is what I possess. So I just will do anything. I'll be an apple polisher around my boss. Just whatever he needs because I want more possessions. So it drives us, but it's not real. Or number two identity today is you are how you feel. Like however you're feeling today, that's what you are. But don't we have conflicting feelings all the time? So self-help books come in two genres and they're really funny to me because they're pitted against each other. Genre number one is be better. 
power of the habit, whatever it is. You read some guy, comfort crisis, man, I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna be the best version of myself, right? Be better. The other one is be authentic. Can you see how those are completely opposite ends? Right? If I'm being authentic, then I don't worry about trying to be better. I just be my bum self. It doesn't matter. I'm being authentically me. So we know this, like our feelings betray us. They go back and forth every single day. They're not a good compass for life. So it can be your possessions. It can be how you feel. Or now it's literally, you can create your reality by what you say. So I say I'm a man, I say I'm a woman, I say I'm a cat, I'm a say I'm a dog, whatever it is, I create my reality simply by saying what I am. We think we're God in that way. We're Genesis 1 speaking our own thing. And all of them betray us because none of them are good or solid and they're all over the place and they change all the time. And all the other identity markers that we had in the past, they're, they're gone. And if someone disagrees with your identity today, you scream and yell at them because they must accept what you say. I think there's a better way for believers. And so there's a Psalm, it's Psalm 8. And we're gonna study Psalm 8 today because it is to me one of the definitive sections of the Bible that says this is actually who you are. This is how God sees you. And if you don't know Psalms very well, study them, they're amazing. Psalms are condensed poetry, that's what they are. It's like if you took some chicken broth or meat stock or something, and you put it on a stove and you boiled it on low all day long, whatever is left in the bottom, it's condensed. That's poetry. That's the Psalms. Like when I read the Psalms, I read one Psalm and that's it. And it's slow and it's thoughtful and it's prayerful because they're that deep. And that's Psalm 8, identity Psalm. So I'm going to read the whole thing and then we're going to talk about it a bit. Psalm 1 verse 1. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Yahweh, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. If you're new to the Bible, when you see all capitals, Lord, it's the covenant name. It's Yahweh. It's when Moses asks God, what's your name? This is what God says. My name is Yahweh. Covenant name. O Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory, kavod, above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Brilliant. This psalm, which is one of the most quoted psalms, about how our identity is seen by God, it begins with this, verse one. O 
Yahweh, our Lord. Why would it begin that way? Because you and I, you and I were created in the image of God. We think in order to learn about ourselves, we need to go and look at our enneagram or however you pronounce it and get our number or figure out our gender or figure out our Myers-Briggs score or look at whether we're introverts or extroverts. You know what the Bible says? Learn about God. Learn about God. You know why? Because we're created in his image. The more you know about how God is, the more you're gonna know about how you were designed because we're supposed to be all these little tiny mirrors that are reflecting back to God, his glory and his majesty. And the more you know how God is, the more you know how your base design is. So Genesis 1, you see this incredible work of God where the earth is, it says, it's without form and void and darkness is on the face of the earth. The earth is a chaotic, uninhabitable place. And it says God's spirit hovered over that dark, chaotic space. And day after day, God takes chaos and he creates order. And when you talk to people about what most fulfills them in life, you know what it is? Taking chaos and creating order. It's a man buys five acres of jungle. And then what does he do? He tames it. And day after day, he cuts and manicures and plants, and he creates Eden out of it, takes the chaos of the jungle and makes a beautiful Eden out of his five acres because that's in us. Take chaos and bring order. It's the man or woman who takes a bunch of kids that have egos and they think they're the best athlete since Michael Jordan. And he takes all those egos and he shapes them and forms them and coaches them into a group that works as a team and they start to win championships. It's chaos to order. It's a teacher who gets a bunch of third graders with jacked up hair and really bad breath. And over the course of a, right, don't they? You go in there, it's like streams of condensation coming down the window. You're like, ah. And she or he takes these kids that are chaotic and he brings she or he brings order to their life and it's meaningful. You know why? Because we're reflecting God's nature right there. That's how we were created. That's why this psalm begins that way. Giving, God's a giver. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life that really what you find is it's not getting more, it's actually giving. Why? Because we're reflecting the glory and majesty of God. And notice it doesn't say, our Lord, oh Lord, my Lord. It doesn't say, oh Yahweh, my Lord. It says, our plural community. You guys all know this. You learn a lot more about yourself when you're around other people than when you're by yourself out in the woods. Don't certain people, when you're with them, they bring out a different part of you. Like certain friends, friends bring out the goofy side of you. Certain friends bring out maybe the cerebral side of you. Certain people bring out the serious side of you, the fun side. What is that? It's community bringing out who we actually are. That we get to know ourselves a lot better by being around other people that bring out something in us that's a little bit different, a little bit unique. 
And it's helpful. We need community. Like I can't tell you how many times my kids would come home from youth group, whatever it was, whoever was teaching, Justin or Everett or Max or Carrie, and they'd come home and be like, dad, you wouldn't believe what Justin said or Carrie said or Everett said. You wouldn't believe what they're saying. And I'm sitting there going, I've been telling you that for 15 years. I'm firing that guy. No. I realized that's the way it works. That person, because of their makeup and the way that they said it, brought out something that was good and beautiful in my kids. And you just say, okay, great. It's our, we need each other. We've got community groups, plug into them. We've got Mondays with ladies. We've got Friday mornings with men. We've got tonight game changers. Get around other people. It's our, not mine. When it comes to identity, then we learn a whole bunch about ourselves by simply being with other people. And now the psalmist just goes off on God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Creation declares the glory of God. The stars, the moons, the heavens, right? The Bible says this, that God has named all the stars, Psalm 147, verse four. He's named them all. He's put them in their places. Remembers their name, remembers the location. Can you imagine that? Like, I can't remember the names of my five children right? You, that one right there, come here, right? I can't remember where I put my wallet. God, billions and billions and billions of stars, names and locations. And so with that as a backdrop, verse four, what is man that you are mindful of him? What am I? When I look out at that and all the stars and the galaxies, what am I, Right? Am I insignificant? Am I a speck, a tiny speck on a speck, surrounded by specks, circling around a speck, in a galaxy of specks, surrounded by galaxies and galaxies of specks? So what do I expect? Right? I'm nothing. I'm insignificant. I'm just trash. Isn't that what evolution says about us? That we're just insignificant specks. We're nothing. We're hairless apes. We're just one tiny step above a chimp. We just got a little bit bigger frontal lobe and that's all we are. That we should go back to being a kind of creature that picks the lice out of the hair of someone else. Like that's all we are. Is that true? Do we really believe that we are on the same class as the rest of the created order? Do we believe that? I think I can convince the most ardent atheist or agnostic that you don't actually believe that. Here's how. Um, at my house, we've had all kinds of animals. Horses, goats, chickens, dogs, goldfish, cats, you name it. Turtles, you name it. Tons and tons of animals. Had foster care kids as well. Little kids, big kids, you name it. So let's say recession hits us hard. And I need to start making some decisions because there's too many mouths to feed, so I gotta cut out some mouths, right? 
Who gets cut out? Do I cut out charity, my wife? You know, we're all just equal, we're all the same. And let's be honest, she's more expensive than a horse. So am I like, charity, you're gone, man, you're too expensive. Anyone think that's a good idea? No, why? Because she's more valuable, right? Is it get rid of one of the kids? Because let's be honest, they're more obedient than the horse. So I'm keeping the horse, you're gone. Do I put an ad on Craigslist, free kid? What would happen to me? DHS is showing up because no one actually believes it. No one believes what they're actually teaching because we know innately in our heart, no, that's not who we are. We're not just like the rest of the created order. There's a difference in humans. There's a difference in us. There's a theology that says we're just trashy, good for nothing. I don't think that's true. Because now listen to the response. What is man? What are we? Listen to the response from God. Verse five, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. What does God think of when he sees you and me? We're a little lower than the heavenly beings. Anyone have a different translation of that heavenly beings? It's literally the word Elohim. I have it up here. Elohim appears a whole bunch in the Bible, 2,681 times. Of the 2,681 times, 2,602 times it is translated God. 72 times it's translated the prophet of God, speaking the very words of God. And there are six other times. This is one of them. What do you think it means? I think it literally means you and I were created just a little bit lower than God. I, I think that's what it means. I think Bible translators are sometimes afraid to tell us what the Bible actually says about us. Listen, human, you are made just shy of divinity. Why would we have a problem with that? When you read Genesis 1, what does it say? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit get together and they say, let us make man in our image. A little south of divinity. How awesome is that? That when God looks at you and me, he doesn't see a worthless, terrible refuse of the earth. He sees an image bearer. One that he created just shy of divinity. And then the psalmist says, crowned. Who gets a crown? Kings and queens, right? Rulers get crowns. I've said to you probably a thousand times now in almost 18 years, you and I are kings and queens in training. One day we will take our rightful places next to our high King Jesus and will rule and reign the cosmos. What does that mean? I don't have any idea. I just know it's true. That we'll rule and reign with King Jesus for eternity, that we're kings and queens in training. And what are we crowned with? Glory. It's the word that's almost entirely used for God, kavod. 
God has kavod, but what does it say he crowns you and me with? It says he crowns you and me with kavod. What does kavod mean? Let me read for you the dictionary, Bible dictionary definition of kavod. What you have been crowned with by God. This is how he crowns you. Listen to these words. Heaviness. Honor. Glory. With honor. Honorably. Majestic. Glory, splendor, abundance, riches. How does God think about you? Honorable, majestic, splendor, honorable. That's how. The word kavod, uh, like it's literal translation, Eglon, who's the fattest man in the Bible. It says he's a very fat man. The way the Hebrew says very fat is this, kavod, kavod. Heavy, heavy, literally how it does it. It's like if you were a teen or a young adult in the 1970s, when something would blow your mind, you'd say, whoa, man, that is so heavy, bro. That's the idea. This should blow your mind. You've been weighted with a glory and abundance, a majesty. That's what God sees with you, right? Like we have this idea that we're wretched, terrible, worthless pieces of junk. That's not how God sees you. We're really good at original sin. We're terrible at original glory. That we are originally, you human being, you are originally crowned with glory. That's brilliant. That's amazing to me. It's why when you understand this glory, it's why you see why racism is so abhorrent to God. Why prejudices are so wrong to God. Why? Because you are taking away a majesty, a glory in another human. It's why the church has always stood for life, whether it's the unborn to the elderly. We've always said, why? Because they are crowned with God's very kavod, and it's our job to protect. It's why the church always presses back against these Harvard professors like Peter Singer, who says, a healthy pig is of more worth than a handicapped child. We say hogwash. That handicapped child has been crowned with God's very glory, majestic, brilliant, worthy of all dignity and respect. That's what the church has always stood for, right? Because we're mirrors, we're mirrors. You wanna look at God's art gallery, right? This is beautiful. God's art gallery is the person sitting right next to you. That's his crowning achievement. That when these mountains are dissolved, with erosion, or when God recreates it, the person sitting right next to you will still exist because you're crowned with glory and honor. It's how God sees you, right? And then verse six through eight, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. That God, when he created this world, he said, you humans, you humans rule over it. And God has put into this world all these raw ingredients that we get to pull out and build things like Teslas and iPhones. Like it's amazing when you think about the stuff that God hid here for you and me to discover to have rule over the triumph that we're supposed to get. 
as his rulers, as his kings, as those that have kavod. Well, time out, Matt. I don't think we rule over creation. I don't think we do that very well. Like those people that try to go in the depths of the sea, they're gone. They're not ruling. True, I would say, I would agree with that. There's been some, some mishaps in Genesis 3 and on, right? So if you've ever done 4-H, we did 4-H for a little while, raised pigs. You realize you don't rule over creation when you try to get a pig into a trailer. Like that thing wins. You're bleeding and you're bloodied and you're exhausted. I guess we did eat him later, so maybe that's ruling. I don't know. <laughs> Bacon, all right? I did rule you. But there are some, some, some cracks in this, no doubt. And you can hear all this. You can hear about, man, you're created just south of divinity. You're heavy, heavy to God. You've got to cavode a majesty. But you can think, not me. I'm not a masterpiece. I'm broken. This Hebrews, or this uh, song is quoted over and over in the Bible. And there's one place in particular that's real important. It's Hebrews chapter two. I'll read it for you. It's Hebrews two verses six through 10. Next slide, I think. There it is. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, this is Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Here's what this just said. We were created to be the top, but sin has toppled us. But Jesus, Jesus comes, the perfect man. Demonstrate, you wanna know how to live life correctly? Read the gospels. Keep reading the gospels. Keep praying, Jesus, I wanna be conformed to your image. That's the right way to live as a human. But he's more than a human because the last little phrase there, it says, for whom and by whom all things exist. What did it just say Jesus did? Created everything that you and I see. He's more than just a man. He's God. He's God in the flesh. So Jesus comes. Here's why Jesus comes. It's this last little phrase. It's why I underlined it. In bringing many sons back to our glory. Glory has been lost in many of us. Our decisions, the world's decisions, the brokenness of this world, we're not masterpieces, we're messes. But here's the good news. Jesus restores us. Jesus redeems us. Jesus gives us back our kavod, our glory, our majesty, our splendor. So the father looks at us the same way as he does in Psalm 8. There's my kavod. I'm crowning you. Have you let Jesus bring you back to glory? Have you confessed him as your king? Have you realized that you're a mess? That this great thing that God had for you to be an image bearer, to be just south of divinity, to be 
kavod, heavy, yes, to have weight to your life. You know, that's not you. But Jesus restores it and gives it back to us and makes us once again just south of divinity, makes us once again the masterpieces that we're supposed to be, brings many sons back to glory. If you have not done that, do it today. Bow your knee to King Jesus. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord, Savior, King. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and he'll bring you back. He'll restore you to the glory that you were designed for. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. The King will bring you back into the kingdom and give you a crown of glory and honor. If you haven't done that today, we're gonna take communion. Right after communion, there'll be people up here that would love to pray for you. And you'll say, I, I, I want I want to be brought back to glory. I want Jesus to bring me back to glory and they'll pray for you. And then today, if you say, man, I confess Jesus and you want to be baptized, right back here, Juan will be back here. And he'll baptize you because in the Bible, there's no space between repentance and believing in Jesus and baptism. There's not another step you got to get to. Throughout the book of Acts, over and over, when the gospel's going out, over and over it says, repent, and be baptized. So we don't have steps for you to take because I don't think Jesus has a step for you to take. You can go into these waters today and the old you can be passed away. The mess that was you is washed away and you're brought out to be the masterpiece that Jesus has for you. Make that confession today. Make it today. You will not regret it. You'll be restored to the glory that God has for you. So Jesus, I pray for any in here. And maybe you have come to church and they've, thought about things and they're wondering about their identity, who they are, I pray that Psalm 8 would tell them who they are. They're your masterpiece. Yes, marred, no doubt. Yes, mistakes were made, no doubt. But nothing bigger than the cross. Nothing that you cannot redeem. Nothing that you cannot remake to bring us back to our original glory. May they make that confession today, I pray. And we ask this in your name, amen.